James is right before Peter. And after Hebrews. James chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to read together through verse 8 and pray together. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like the wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's pray together. Father, as we approach your scripture, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. We know your word is active, it's living, it's powerful. May you challenge and change our perspective on trial. As we go through the book of James, may you really teach us and identify what faith looks like. Would you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand? Please pour out your spirit and bring fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Faith defined. As we go through James over the next several weeks, we're going to have a working definition of faith. A lot of times in our lives, our Christian life, we're familiar with terms. We say them all the time, things like faith, but we really don't have a working knowledge of what it means to trust the Lord. James uses the word faith 12 times in this short book. It's only five chapters. You could probably sit down and read James in 15 to 20 minutes. But in those five chapters, he mentions faith 12 times. And he's really going to give us an understanding of not just faith theologically, not this lofty view of faith, but he's really going to give us the nuts and bolts. James is really a rubber meets the road type of apostle. And each of the apostles have different gifts. And Paul gives us great understandings in theology, in Romans and Ephesians and Philippians. But James is more of the basketball coach or the football coach of the New Testament. Some of you are football fans and you're gonna be watching some football today. You're recording some games right here while you're at church. And some of you are following it on your phones during the service. And you've got maybe some of your favorite coaches, right? And what does a good coach do? A good coach will give you the how-to. He'll explain, this is how you are to block. This is how you're to shoot a basket. These are the things that you need in technique. But then he's also going to hold you accountable. And that's what James does for us, is he gives us the how-to of faith, but he also holds us accountable. He's that coach that's getting in the face of every believer saying, it's time to get off of the bench and put some things into practice. The first way that faith is defined in these first eight verses is joy in trial. When we choose to have joy in the midst of trial, it is an expression of our faith in the Lord. This morning we'll be highlighting several things that you may want to write down as we travel through these eight verses. So let's look in verse one. James, the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. So first we consider who's James. James is the human author that God used to write this book. 
There's several James given to us in the New Testament. So which James is this author? It doesn't say. It just says James. So we try to put together the pieces of which James it is. And all of the evidence points towards the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Of course, Mary and Joseph, after Christ was born, went on to have normal husband and wife relationships. If you don't know what a normal husband and wife relationship looks like, let me just tell you it resulted in kids. If you've got more questions than that, Pastor Robert would love to meet with you (laughs) one-on-one. So they've got kids. So Jesus grew up with these half-brothers, half-sisters, and we find in the Gospels that his brothers don't believe in Jesus. In John 7, they're testing Jesus in unbelief. But after the resurrection, James comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, becomes a leader in the early church, Acts 15. He's leading the group of believers the Jewish believers there in Jerusalem. There's a dispute over circumcision, the Gentiles, whether they need to be circumcised or not. And James gets up and gives the answer from the Lord. It's this man that then writes this book and gives this epistle. And the reason why we believe it's the half-brother of Jesus Christ is this little epistle is written in a leadership perspective. It's authoritative. So it makes sense that the leader of the Jewish church would be the one who is writing this letter. Can you imagine for just a moment what it would be like to be the half-brother of Jesus Christ? I mean, Jesus never, never sinned. He never said things like, you're a jerk, or you're stupid, or tripped you, or threw you on the ground, or any of those kind of things. Maybe you had a sibling who was the golden boy or the golden girl, got good grades, You kind of had a C or B average. They always had an A plus average. Just always knew the right thing to say to mom and dad to win their favor. So they got the golden boy label, the golden gal label, and you got the black sheep pajamas. You were kind of the black sheep of, of the family. Well, think about what that would have been like for James. James comes to his parents, Mary and Joseph, and says, Jesus did it. And they're like, no, no, Jesus didn't do it. Come here, James. You know, you just couldn't get away with anything. And Jesus is the oldest in in the family. So this is the way that James grew up, but he did come to this place of faith in the Lord after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How does he describe himself in verse one? He says, a bondservant. He could have said that, well, I'm Pope James. I'm the half-brother of Jesus Christ. You need to listen to me. But he says, I'm a bondservant. And this means slave by choice. We have to understand that, that culturally, inside of the nation of Israel, they have a history of choosing to be a slave. The Old Testament laid it out as a bondservant, where you become the property of someone else because they're such a great master. And you realize, my life is better with them than on my own. So people would actually commit themselves to be the slave of someone else, a wonderful, gracious, kind master. And that's what James is saying. I've found God to be that good. Jesus is that good, and so I want to be his slave. I want to belong to God. I want to live to do his will. When we come to that same place in in our lives, there's freedom. To realize I don't live for myself. I wasn't created to be the master of my own destiny. I was created to be the bondservant of Jesus Christ. 
He also notes that Jesus is God, the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He puts Jesus as Lord and Jesus on the same level as the Father. Who's he writing to? Who's the audience of of this letter? It's to these 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. These are the Jewish believers. The Jewish believers in Jerusalem stayed together in a holy huddle. Have you noticed we tend to do that as believers? We get together with other believers, which is great, but we tend to not reach out to unbelievers. Well, that's what was happening with the first church. Until what? Persecution. Stephen gets martyred. Saul wreaks havoc upon the church. The Jewish believers spread out and they take Jesus with them everywhere they go, just like we should do. And the church begins to spread. Have you found that trial sometimes changes your physical location and you get scattered? Maybe you're here in the Springs because you lost a job somewhere else in the country and you never planned to live in Colorado Springs. Some of you love Colorado Springs. This is your home, your family's here and you're having to move because of a loss of job here in town, and there's no jobs to be found, and so now you're looking at another place in the country to go and live, and God has a way of doing that, and so these 12 tribes are scattered abroad. Notice that they don't lose their Jewishness even though they're in Christ. So they're in Christ, but they're Jewish believers. God hasn't forsaken Israel, There's not replacement theology that the Gentile church has replaced Israel. We see in the book of Revelation, God working in and through Israel. There's 12,000 men that are on fire for Christ from each tribe of Israel, known as the 144,000. Romans 9, 10, and 11 tell us of God's future plan for the nation of Israel. So what does James have to tell these guys? In verse two, he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. So if you're taking notes or thinking these things through with me, the first is there's an instruction, the instruction. God gives us a command here. He says, I want you to count it all joy when you fall into various trials. This word count, it's exactly what you'd think it would be. It means to do the math. Just as a kid in elementary school would learn to count, one, two, three, four, five, six. Two plus two is four. God's saying, I want you to look at the trials in your life and I want you to do the math. I want you to consider it joy, all joy, that you're going through this trial. Now, think about that phrase for just a moment, joy in trial. It's an oxymoron. It seems like two things that shouldn't go together. Joy in trial don't belong in the same sentence apart from Christ. If it's not for Christ, I don't tend to be joyful when I'm going through trial. We went to a refresh conference up at Calvary Aurora Friday night and Saturday morning, and the pastor that came in to teach was talking about how there's so many oxymorons in our culture and our society. So I just want to share a few with you. Think about this. Civil war. We use that all the time. Civil war. Has there ever been a war that's civil? When you really stop and think about it, they're never civil, right? How about this one, mall food? Those two words should not go together. They're an oxymoron. There is not good food at the mall, right? How about this, dry ice? If you didn't know what that was, you'd be like, what in the world? This is a great one. I love it. Pretty ugly. Which one is it? Is it pretty or is it ugly, right? We're alone together. A new classic. A smart bomb. 
right? Oxymoron. And that's what we think of joy in trial. We have to understand that joy is not happiness. Happiness is the boss calls you in and says, hey, we're doing well. You got a 5% raise. You call home and you say, woohoo, we're going out to steak dinner, you know? You do the math. This is how much more I'm making per month. Well, the loss of happiness is when the boss calls you in and says, we're not doing very well. Everybody's taking a 20% cut in pay. There goes happiness, and you call home and say, we're never going out to eat again, right? And life just kind of goes up and down, and we're emotionally drawn by our circumstances. But what God is saying to us is that we can have abiding joy that's based on who God is, his eternal truth, our relationship with God, that no one can touch. Count it all joy when you go into various trials. I love how scripture states this because this is life. Life is various trials. There's different trials, different sizes, shapes, colors of trials. There's the absolute trauma where your life falls apart in a moment where you lose a loved one, a family member passes away and it happens so quickly. Just bam, and there, there you are and they're gone. You'll never see them again. You get that phone call that you have cancer. The biopsy has come back. It's the worst news that you can imagine. A terminal disease like Parkinson's or MS. There's these life-altering traumas that, that we go through. And then there's just the daily trials of life, whether it's a misunderstanding in a relationship, some difficulties inside of the home, some challenges with a child, the, those are the things, they're trials, they're relational trials. And then somewhere a little bit lower on the trial severity is something like the furnace broke. That's a trial, isn't it? They're not getting any cheaper. The more eco-friendly the furnaces get, the more money they cost you, right? Refrigerator decides to go out. The washer decides to go out. Someone decides to steal your car. All kinds of things happen. I had that happen this summer, but that's another story. <laughs> My car got stolen, but praise the Lord. You know, it's, it was pretty funny, pretty hilarious. Well, it's the 11 o'clock service, so I'll tell the story. <laughs> so it was a Thursday afternoon, and I go out into the church parking lot to go to an appointment. I'm looking around for my 92 Honda Accord, and it was gone. And I literally thought I was going crazy because I'm pretty absent-minded. So sometimes I have to look for my car in the parking lot because it's like, well, I usually park here, but I parked over there. And so maybe, I, and so I'm walking around everywhere looking for my car. So I go get Pastor Robert and I'm saying, can you help me? Like, because I think I'm going out of my mind. I can't find my car. I think it's stolen, but I just need someone to confirm this. So he looks around and walks around everywhere, and sure enough, it had gotten stolen right out of the church parking. Like, who wants a 1992 Honda Accord, right? It's got 200,000 miles on it. And so the story goes on from there, but like four or five days later, it was found in an apartment complex just right by the Starbucks down here at Flint Ridge and Academy. Five bucks, you've seen it right there. Every time you go to Starbucks, you spend five bucks, right? So there was my car in the, parked in the apartment complex with little to, to no, no damage. But that was a little bit of a trial. It's down here on the list, right? But we go through all of these trials in life, and when they happen, God wants us to count it as joy. And this is why. We look at verse 3. 
So knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So this is the understanding. First there's the instruction, but now there is the understanding that we know. And this word know in the Greek, it's got the idea of secret knowledge, a knowing smile. Have you ever talked to somebody and they should not be smiling, but for some reason they're smiling and you're like, what do you know that I don't know? That's the idea here of this word knowing. That even though the world doesn't understand, people that don't know Christ, we know something they don't know. That we have a loving God, a loving Father that's working in our lives. And though this trial is testing us, God has a purpose behind it. And it says the testing of your faith. So faith defined, first faith is defined as we go through a trial. What's the purpose of a test? A test is to show us what we know or we don't know. It's to bring out the quality of something. If someone's producing a product, they're gonna test it, aren't they? Remember being in school? You get taught this by the teacher, the instructor, and then they present the material on a test to see what you know and what you don't know. And our God, our Father, he will not tempt us. We'll learn that next week. We're tempted by our own evil desires. He's not out to destroy us, but he will test us. He'll put us through a trial so that we can know where our faith is with God. That's how our faith's revealed and our faith's defined. As we go through the trial, we realize, man, my faith is really weak here. I really don't trust God with my finances. Or my faith's weak here with my kids. I really haven't put my kids into God's hands. Or my faith's weak here with my health, my physical health. I really haven't surrendered that over to the Lord or wow, praise God, my faith's pretty strong here. Five years ago, I would have faltered in this, but now I'm trusting him in this. So God allows us to go through those trials so that our faith will be tested. And then please notice this, it produces patience. Oh no, who wants patience, right? But trials are producing something good in our lives. And this word patience, it means endurance. It's not just going to the grocery store It's not doing your grocery shopping at Walmart and they have 40 registers and there's two of them that are open and you're gonna stand there for 20 minutes and you're like, can't they figure out a more efficient way to take my money? You know, I need patience there. But this is more than just learning how to wait. This is learning how to wait under a difficulty. So this trial It's heavy, it's hard to bear, but I'm learning how to bear it in a patient manner. And God's working that into our hearts and in our lives. Yesterday we had the run for revolution. The Lord bless you if you went out and ran or walked in it. I didn't go out and run yesterday. But you know this, if you exercise on a regular basis, you build up endurance. If you haven't went out jogging for a long time and you start out five minutes, you're exhausted, your side hurts, you feel like you're gonna die, that continues for a week or two, but then you get to a point where the five-minute mark's no problem, and actually you're starting to enjoy it, and you build up endurance, and that's what God's doing in our life. He's, he's building up endurance in our lives, and you can probably look back and go, man, early on in my walk with the Lord, this was really difficult for me, but he continues to grow me in perseverance. Romans 5 tells us this exact same truth, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulation, Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. 
Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I love this quote by Henry Beecher. That's a good name. We are always on the anvil. By trials, God is shaping us for higher things. The anvil's the blacksmith. And God's the master craftsman. And he's more concerned about our character than our comfort. He loves us enough to say, Eric, you're not going to learn this lesson any other way. And do you believe that about trial? Do we understand that about trial? And this is hard, and this is filled with tears. James 1 through verse 8 could be a section in your Bible that is marked by the tears that come from a broken heart. Because this is times of not understanding, of getting on our face before God, saying, God, this hurts. I would never want to be in this situation, but I trust you. I do consider it joy because you're working something in my life that couldn't be worked any other way. C.S. Lewis has this quote about pain. He says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. Isn't that true? Pain's gonna stop us. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It's through pain that the Lord works and produces character in us. Here's the silver lining in trial, is look for Jesus. Look for him. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They were thrown into the fiery furnace because of their stand for righteousness. The fire was so hot that the men that threw them into the furnace died. Who came to their rescue? None other than Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar looks in and speaking of math, he goes, I think we put three guys in there and I'm seeing four. What's going on? And the fourth is like unto the Son of God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego actually had to be called out of the fire because they were enjoying such sweet fellowship with Jesus. In the loss of a loved one, a child, a parent, a spouse, look for Jesus. In the loss of a job, look for Jesus. Maybe you're amidst this furlough with the government shutdown, look for Jesus. We were the number one affected city in the nation because we have so much military and so much support of the military. So there's many people in our church and in our community that are affected by that. Look for Jesus. Challenges in the home, look for Jesus. We gain the knowledge of Jesus Christ in the midst of going through trial. Verse four, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But let patience have its perfect work. The next point to consider is the yielding. There's the instruction that comes first. There's the understanding, but then we have to yield to it. I think this is the hardest part. Instead of trying to run away from the trial, is we, okay, God, you're sovereign. You love me. You've allowed this difficulty in my life. If you want to take it away, great. But Lord, if you choose for this difficulty to endure in my life, then I am going to look for what you want to teach me and I'm gonna yield to it. And that's what verse four says, but let patience have its perfect work. Church, Rocky Mountain Calvary, brothers and sisters in Christ, haven't you seen in your life that trial doesn't guarantee growth? It's not a guarantee. A lot of challenges in my life didn't result necessarily in growth because I wasn't yielding to the process that God had me in. How many people 
around you that you know, close friends, family members, they go through really difficult times and they actually get more bitter instead of getting better, instead of getting more like Christ. So it's not a guarantee. The way that we're gonna grow and mature and be made complete is if we allow patience to have its perfect work. Sometimes we've gotta sit our hind side, take our can and just sit down in the hot sand instead of trying to run away from the trial and say, okay, God, these are my circumstances. I'm gonna quit trying to change them and I'm gonna allow you to teach me what you want me to. There was a season in my life about a two to three year period was very difficult. There was a lot of trials in a lot of different forms, but there was kind of the granddaddy of them all that was the dark cloud over everything else. And a lot of my prayers were, God, could you fix this situation? Could you make the circumstance go away? Those kind of things. And it wasn't really until I just sat down in the hot sand and quit trying to get out of the situation and say, okay, God, I finally get it. I'm a slow learner. I'm into this now for three years. What do you want me to learn? What is it in my character that you want to do and you've allowed me to be in this situation? And that's a difficult thing to do, but that's when the growth comes. We say, okay, God, I'm yielding to it, and I'm ready to be taught. Verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, is that you this morning? Do you fit that qualification? So now we consider the need. What's the, the need that we have in the midst of trial? I know this about various trials, is it brings me to the end of my resources. It brings me to the end of my wisdom, and a lot of times it brings our friends to the end of their wisdom too. We go to our friends and we're like, hey, what do you think? Do you have any ideas? And there is a real place for godly counsel from friends, but sometimes they're going through it with us and they're saying, you know what? Your best guess is the same as my best guess, and I don't really know, and we lack wisdom. So if we lack wisdom in the trial that we're in, we're in a good place, but sometimes we don't realize that we don't have the answer. Ever been there? My dad's an engineer. I, I tend to adopt his mind of thinking. I tend to look at problems and I think about them really analytically. So I go from top down and then I go from the bottom up and then I think about the problem diagonally and then I think about it the other way diagonally and then I think about it in a circle because there has to be some solution to this problem. And by that time, after I've done all of that, I've lost a night of sleep. <laughs> And then I get to a place after I've hit some brick walls and ran myself into some brick walls and I get tired and I get wore out. I go, Lord, verse five's true. I lack wisdom. And as we grow in Christ, hopefully we're starting to realize sooner that I lack wisdom, that I need God's help. Let's read the rest of verse five down to verse eight and then we'll work our way through it. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. A promise that's given to us is if we ask in faith that God will give liberally without approach, it will be given to him. This is the promise of God. God has the wisdom for your trial. He has the wisdom for the trials in my life. There's something in us that says, God's never seen my trial before. 
Yeah, he has. Human history is pretty long and extensive. And people have gone through trials that are similar. Each trial is unique, and we're unique in our personalities and the way that God has made us, but he's seen our trial before. Other people have gone through what we're currently going through, and God does have wisdom to give to us. And notice what he says, that the promise is, is he'll give it liberally. This means that God will give it generously. He's not going to be there and go, okay, here's a little bit of wisdom. He's saying, I've got buckets of wisdom that I'm just ready to pour out upon you in a generous fashion. Also, he gives it without reproach. Have you ever asked wisdom from somebody and they give it to you in a real condescending way? It's about time you asked. You know, if you wouldn't have messed up here and here and here, you wouldn't be over here. So this is where you go from here. And you're, by this time, you're like, oh, you know, I think I'll go ask somebody else. And sometimes that's our perspective of God. And he's a loving, gracious father where he's ready to give wisdom and not beat you up over it. Not going to, well, man, you really messed things up or you should have asked for wisdom a lot sooner. Why'd you ask all your friends without asking me? No, he just goes, I'm gonna give it liberally. I'm gonna give it without reproach. So that's the promise that God gives. And here's the condition. There's a condition to this promise. We're not gonna just receive God's wisdom by osmosis. There's something that God asks us to do. What does he ask us to do? First, we've gotta ask. We've gotta ask. If we don't ask for the wisdom, he's not going to give it to us. There's a point in the Gospels, it happens several times, but on this particular occasion, God sends the disciples on the Sea of Galilee knowing that they're going to be in a storm. It's a God-ordained trial in their life. Then Jesus comes and walks on the water, and he's actually just cruising on the storm that's rocking the boat of their life, and the Gospels say that he's going to walk right past them until they cry out. He waited to come and help them until they cried out. It seems like God's soft spot. You know what I mean by that? Where God responds is humility and faith. If we think we've got it together, even though we're sinking, he's not going to respond. So us asking shows humility. And then faith shows our confidence in the Lord. So first we've got to ask. Are you asking God for his solutions for the trials in your life. Is it financial? Are you asking him? If it's relational, are you asking him? If it's physical, are you asking him? All the different trials that come in life, are we asking him? But we've also got to ask in faith. We've got to ask in faith. And this really gets the core to the trial. Do we believe, first and foremost, that God is in control and that he rules and reigns and he's allowed this trial in our life? What's your understanding and theology of trial? Job went through so many trials, and each one had to pass through the hand of God. God's sovereign, and he's in control. Satan wanted to destroy Job. He wanted to tempt Job, but he just didn't have free reign in Job's life. The Father gave permission. And you may find that really difficult. I find that really comforting to go, ultimately, this passed through the hand of God. And you say, well, what about people's sinful choices? We live in a sinful world. Yes, we do. But we see in Joseph's life 
that God's plan was even unfolding and he was taking evil and using it for good. Joseph's brothers sell him as a slave. I mean, who needs family when they treat you like that, right? They send him off to Egypt as a slave. Things go well in Potiphar's house. He's running Potiphar's house, but then he gets falsely accused for rape, thrown into prison. But yet God was working. There happened to be a butler and a baker there. They had some dreams. Joseph interpreted it. It all led to God's plan of Joseph being second in charge to the Pharaoh. Joseph was used to save his whole entire family, to save the nation of Israel. So even when people are making sinful decisions against us, God is working, and we do, we believe that. And then as we're going through this trial, that we actually believe that God hears. Do you believe that God wants to hear your prayer this morning about the trial that you're going through and that he actually has an answer, that he's got the wisdom to be able to give into that particular trial? So the enemy to this condition of asking in faith is doubt. And Satan loves this, doesn't he? He came to Eve and he said, has God really said? And in the midst of trial, the enemy's gonna be there to say, does God really love you? Is God really gonna be faithful to his promises to work all things together for good? And if we're not careful, that doubt can erode our faith. So how do we strengthen our faith? Maybe you're saying, you know what, Eric, I'm in the midst of trial. And if I'm honest, my faith is weak this morning. What can I do practically? Romans 10 tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The more we hear the word of God, the more we understand who God is and it's easier to trust him. So you get in the word like nobody's business. You read it like you've never read it before. You listen to it like you've never listened to it before. Listen to the the word of God. And as you listen and read and meditate upon the word of God, your faith is gonna be strengthened. And all of a sudden, God is gonna seem so much greater than the trial that we're going through. Then also, it's very important to be honest with God. Remember the man in the gospels where he said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's a good place to be because it's honest and it's real and it's authentic before the Lord, but we've got to ask in faith. What happens if we don't ask in faith? Look with me here in our text is we're like a wave that's tossed by the wind. If you've been to the ocean, you've seen the the waves. I grew up in Oregon and the Oregon coast. There's some intense storms that come upon the Pacific in that area. And as the wind kicks up, the waves are at the whim of the wind. And that's what our life can be like if we're not asking in faith, is we're just tossed in every direction. It also tells us if we're not in a place of trusting and asking in faith, we're not gonna receive anything from the Lord. Interesting, God doesn't say, you've gotta have your act together in order to receive wisdom. Hey, give me your performance record if you want wisdom. All he says is, you gotta trust me, and then I'll give you wisdom. You gotta believe that I have an answer got to believe my wisdom. So we're like a wind that's tossed, and then we're also a double-minded man, unstable in all of our ways. It's hard to look at our own lives sometimes, but stop and look for just a moment. Do you see a lot of confusion in your life and instability and changing of mind? Double mind means one day I think this, and then the next day I think this, and I always go back and forth. If that's the case, if there's a lot of instability and a lot of changing of mind and changing of direction, we've got to stop and go, you know what, 
have I sought out God's wisdom and am I committed to living to it? Because I think we've all been there. I know that I've been there. In a trial, it takes me a while to get to the point of asking God for wisdom. And then I ask for wisdom. I believe he's got the wisdom to give me. And then he's gracious enough to give me the wisdom. And then sometimes I've argued with God over the wisdom he's just given me. I'm like, no, I didn't expect that answer to this trial. You must have got it wrong, you know? This is what I really think I need to do in this situation. And if it gets real bad, then I waffle back and forth. And in the morning, I'm like, oh yeah, what the Lord shows me right. What he says in his word and, you know, godly counsel, this is exactly what I need to do. And then by later in the day, I don't know, I don't know if this is what I should do. I'm going back and forth. And isn't that a terrible place to be? It's a miserable place to be. And God wants us to have stability. He wants to be that refuge in the midst of the storm where once he shows that wisdom, when we ask in faith, that we hold on to it and we don't let it go. And we say, the wisdom of God is better than anything that man can offer. It's not gonna be my solution. It's gonna be God's solution. And I'm holding on to his wisdom that he's provided in this particular situation. Consider three questions with me. The first is this, how do I view the trials I'm in? Maybe it is the car. How do I view it? Maybe it is a challenge with one of your roommates or a difficulty with one of your kids. Maybe you've got just an awful boss that's so hard to work with and you've been looking for another job and searching for another job, trying to get away from this boss and God's not providing another job. Maybe God has put that boss in your life to be that trial that does a work in your heart and in your life. Maybe it's been five years, seven years, 10 years, 15 years of financial struggle. Crying out, Lord, please just take this away. Is there something that God's wanting to do in the midst of that? And how do I view the trials that I'm in? It's a good question. Am I running from the trials or am I allowing God to mold me? That's a hard question. Am I running from the trials or am I allowing God to mold me, shape me, and fashion me? Am I yielding to it? And the last am, am I asking God for wisdom and faith? I'm saying, Lord, what, what's your solution? What's your wisdom in this particular trial that I'm going through? What we're gonna do right now is we're gonna pray for one another because the scripture tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And some come in today and you're right in the midst of a trial. And I encourage you to think about it in that term of various trials. And for some of you, it's the worst of the worst. It's traumatic. You're at your wit's end. I'm gonna ask that you'd raise your hand and in just a moment, those who are sitting around you, they're gonna come and lay hands on you and they're gonna pray for you. We're not gonna ask for you to share specifics. The Lord knows. You're not gonna have to share details but we wanna pray for you. We want to pray for God's wisdom. Some of you are at about a five on the trial level. And right now you're saying, I don't need to raise my hand because I didn't lose a loved one or I didn't get diagnosed with a terminal disease. But the trial's very real in your life and you're needing God's wisdom. You need to raise your hand as well. Maybe you're like, you know, my trial's on a one or two. It's not life-threatening. It's just a little bit annoying, but I need God's wisdom to be able how to respond. And this is the beginning of a, a chance to respond. When we hear God's word, we want to respond to God's word. And so let's pray. I'm going to pray for us and give you a chance just to raise your hand and hold it up high. 
I'm going to ask the others around you to come and put their hands on your shoulders and to pray for you. So let's allow God to minister to us.